It's Empty the Inbox Day. That's right. The mailbag questions have piled up. So we're going to empty the inbox or clear the spindle, whatever you want to say, whatever metaphor you want to use. But it's an all-mailbag, all-the-time episode of Open Line. We've got the questions you've sent us about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life, and we're going to address them. So hang tight. We're going to get to those in just a moment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. My name is Michael Rydelnik. I'm professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute, also dean here. I'm here today and every Saturday to do my best to answer your questions about the scriptures. Normally, the bulk of this program is taking your phone calls. Not so today. Today, it's all mailbag all the time. So the best way to be in touch with us is via our website, openlineradio.org. There's a link there that says, Ask Michael a Question. You can click on that, fill out the form, and get your question added to a future mailbag. Also joining me today to help with your questions is the person I turn to when I have a question about the Scriptures, my favorite Bible teacher, a colleague on the faculty of MBI, a contributor to the Moody Bible Commentary and the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, and she just also happens to be my wife, Eva Rydelnik. Hey, Eva, I'm so glad you're here. Hey, Michael, it's so much fun to be here yeah, all the time. It's great fun. We're going to do our best today, and I'm so glad you don't have to text answers to me today. <laughs> I can just turn it right over to you. Also joining us is producer of Open Line, the person who always makes everything happen here, who puts the mailbag together for to for today and for every time we have a mailbag. Trisha McMillan. Hey, Trisha. Hello. Yay. And aren't you a moody grad too, I Trisha? I am. A double moody grad. Oh, yeah. 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 Undergrad and, and graduate. And my master's. Yeah. Yay. That's right. So, you know, that's why sometimes people call in with questions and you think, oh, that's not a great question for today. But you actually get on the phone and you answer people's questions and say, we can't put your question on the air today, but here's the answer. Yeah, and it's great. You know what? When you do that, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I just love that. Yeah. We try we try and get all the questions answered that we can. Yeah. yeah. But some days it's just not going to work. No. We're running out of time, right. various uh, issues at hand. And I just love it that you don't want to leave people hanging very often. You, you'll answer their questions. And they think, well, why can I trust you? Because you're a double moody grad. <laughs> That's, That's right. why. That's it. So I appreciate that so much. Courtney, uh, Young is here. She's handling all things technical as we record this program. Remember, don't call. We're going to take our questions from the mailbag. Trisha, why don't we get started? All I right. think we should go right to the mailbag. All right. Our first question is from Eugene in Ohio. He listens to WFCJ. He wants to know which version of the Bible do you consider the most accurate? Ah, the most accurate. That's a different question than the best one to read, isn't it? It is. Yeah, look at that. Well, I would say... Uh, I'm going to just defer this one to Eva. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you talk about accurate, you're made the question is, which is the most literally word for word to the original languages? And I think that would be the New American Standard Bible. Yeah. It I, is the, as far as the translation, it is the most literal word for word yeah. translation. However, sometimes that makes it a little bit of a clunkier read. So it's not the favorite Bible of everybody. Yeah. There are other Bibles that do a very similar job and are maybe a better, smoother read. What do you think, Mike? Yeah. There, you know, when you think about Bible translation, there's word-for-word -word Bible translation, and the New American Standard tends to be word-for-word. -word. Uh, and then there's also thought-for-thought -for -thought translations 
that are like the New Living Translation. Uh, even the NIV veers more towards towards thought for thought. And then there's uh, Bibles in between on the spectrum. Uh, and in this spectrum, for example, the Holman CSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, that's much more of a moderating, but it, it's starting to lean in the revision. It's leaning more towards thought for thought, although it's still in the middle. And then uh, the ESV is more, English Standard Version, is more of a word, it's still in the, it's, it's, a, it's more of a, one of these moderating ones, more in the center on the spectrum, but it leans more towards a word for word. So uh, there's all sorts of ways that people choose their Bible translations. Uh, one of the things that I've always heard Eva say to people is the best translation for you is the, the one the one that you'll read? Yeah, the one that you really enjoy reading. Yeah, mm-hmm. and can I ask a follow up then? Sure. This accuracy, what is it? Is it just translating the Hebrew and the Greek? Well, that, it depends on what you mean by accuracy. Accuracy could be literal. That's why you've said the, the New word American for Standard. Word. Yeah, and then, but sometimes we miss concepts uh, because languages change over thousands of years, and we're not just talking about over time. But over language, you know, we're translating. So uh, we have to understand what concept was being communicated. And that's why, uh, like, for example, the Holman CSB, okay? When it first came out, it translated the word glossa in a non-literal way. The word glossa means tongue. And when it talked about the gift of of glossas, right? Uh, it translated the gift of languages because that's what it, that's the concept. We even use that in English, you know, men of every tribe and tongue, we mean every language, right? Mm-hmm. And so th- what they did is they translated it conceptually uh, as language, but they found that there were a lot of people that objected to that because they they were committed to the word tongues as the translation. They wouldn't even buy that translation, even though that was the most accurate way of translating it. So in the revision, the Holman CSB came out about 15 years after the original, and they changed it to tongues, which is literal, but doesn't. it's not as accurate because it misses the concept. Okay. All right. How do, how do we know then whether the concept or the word is the best translation? Uh, Are we just relying on the translators to figure that out? Yeah. Or having commentaries? Having translated, I I think you have to really know the language and usage. Uh, You see, when you see how the word is used, then you get the concept. And and some places, uh, you know, uh, for example, the word in Hebrew, zerah, it means seed. But obviously, in context, sometimes it's not talking about seeds of trees or grass or things like that. It's talking about... About people. 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 Like reproduction. Yeah. Uh Uh So there it means offspring. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so you have to get the... It's. I always... uh, When I teach how to do a word study in my interpretation class, I say it's the usage of the word in general in the Bible, and then put it in context. Because usage gives you the range of meaning. The context tells you how it's being used in this particular passage. Okay. And I think, you know, keeping a, uh, an awareness that English language itself 
changes. It, it's not the same. It's not static. The first English language Bible, the Cloverdale, was published in 1535. Hmm. And if we read that English version, we could read the English, but many of the of the words wouldn't mean the, the same thing as they meant in 1535. Yeah, right? even think about when the Lord Jesus said in the King James Version, it's translated, suffer the little children to come unto me. Who wants the little children to suffer? Yeah, well, not I. <laughs> no. Well, when you think about it, the word suffer back in the 17th century when the King James was translated meant permit. Right. Mm. Uh, okay. And so now it's translated permit the little children to come to me because okay. that's the change even in English language. Okay. And we and we hear that same word, the women's suffrage movement. Does that mean we yeah. want women to suffer? No, we want women to have the permission to vote. Yeah. That's huh. what but suffrage they've, was. They've, that's what there's a the word suffrage, how it came in. Okay. So, yeah. Now, that said, with even these differences we're talking about, these are pretty minor things, and we can still trust the versions, the the, the main versions that we're reading. Yeah. Excellent point. The, that's a, the, the best thing about it is that, that while there may be variations, and I think that one of the things, when you're doing in-depth study of a book, even if you don't know Hebrew or Greek, Right, the best thing to do is to look at multiple translations because if they differ, then you know you better go hit the commentaries and do some deeper research. So I think that's it. But I would say our English translations today that we have, whether you're going word for word or thought for thought or somewhere in between, are the best translations that have ever been. Yep. Mm. Yeah, we have the most up to date manuscripts. We can make sure that we have the earliest and best versions of the Bible. Uh, we get back to as close as we can to the original uh, and as it was written, which are the inerrant scriptures and the original manuscripts. We can get back to that, and they are being. We know much more about philology or the study of words. Uh, we have a much better context for translation than we ever did before, and the translations are excellent. Okay. Good. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> In case yeah, anyone's listening to us and say, wait a minute, what can do I, I trust do? this? Yeah. Yep. You yeah. can trust can. it. You can trust it. Yeah, it'll change your life. Go ahead and read it. Whatever version you're reading, it's going to change your life if it's one of those respected, accepted translations. We're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we've got more of your mailbag questions. And we'll take a little less time with future <laughs> questions. But that's such a vital one about what Bible should I read? How could we not talk about that? Uh, we're going to come right back, and there are more mailbag questions on this all mailbag, all the time day, right here on Open Line with Eva Radelnik and Trisha McMillan and me, Michael Radelnik. Stay right there. The Old Testament books of Psalms and Proverbs teach us biblical life lessons and principles that are too important to skip over. That's why we'd like to send you the commentaries on Psalms and Proverbs taken from the Moody Bible Commentary. Learn how the poetry and prophecy in these two books apply to our lives. You can request your copy today when you give a gift of any amount to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122 or give online at openlineradio.org. We're back. My name is Michael Rydelnik. The program is called Open Line. Joining me today, Eva Rydelnik and Trisha McMillan. It's an all-mailbag, all-the-time edition of Open Line. And we're going to 
answer the questions you've sent in. Don't call today. We're pre-recorded, but uh, do listen, because I'm sure these are questions you've wanted answered as well. Go ahead, Tricia. All right. We are going to 1 Corinthians 11. David has a question in Indiana, and he listens to WGNR, wanting to know about 1 Corinthians 11, specifically verse 4, which says, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Mm -hmm. So his question is, why do Jewish men wear head coverings? And yeah. and having just been to the Western Wall recently, yeah. where which is like uh, as close as you can get to the temple in Jerusalem, you are required to have men are required to have a head covering. Yeah. Um. And so, what does this verse? Talking well, th- about? this this is talking about uh, in First Corinthians eleven. It's not talking about wearing a kippah or a skull cap like Jewish men wear mm-hmm. or a hat. It's talking about being fully veiled because in the passage it's talking about women having their heads covered, requ- being required, and they were fully veiled. And so their so, faces and everything? Yeah. So uh, apparently in the first century, the Jewish tradition, and this could very well be, we're not really clear what Paul was talking about. We know it's some sort of Jewish veiling that, or some sort of veiling of the head. It appears that Jewish men took the talit, the prayer shawl, and put it over their head and covered their eyes with it so as to show their... Uh, focus, uh, or Well, not just focus, but their, it was more like their humiliation before God. We can't even show our face to him. And uh, what this is saying, uh, that, that that's not what it should be, uh, that we should, with boldness, pray with our head uncovered. Uh, and so not dishonor your head by veiling it with a talit. And it appears that even in Corinth, because there were Jewish believers there, uh, you know, we know this because Paul talks about 1 Corinthians 5, uh, about the Passover. There obviously are Jewish believers in the congregation, and they were basically encouraging all the believers there, both Jewish and Gentile, to have their heads covered and veiled probably with a talit, and Paul saying, no, don't do that. You're the glory and image of God, and don't do that. Women, on the other hand, should veil their heads, is what he was saying, because it reflected their submissive attitude. And what I think is so interesting is that was what was considered modest for a woman to be veiled. It was considered modest in the first century. And so it was their modesty that Paul was getting at. Now, today, a woman could still have a submissive attitude, but doesn't need to be veiled because that is not what the culture understands as a symbol of modesty. And so I would say that if we were to update this in terms of application, the, the, the attitude of respect for uh, God and, and male leadership on women shouldn't probably change. On the other hand, uh, the expression of it would be different in terms of modest dress. And I, I let Eva handle what... <laughs> no, some, sometimes if someone says to me, students sometimes will say to me, is this modest? I'm like, uh, ask Eva. Yeah. <laughs> and I say, Dr. Dare say. Yeah, just... So. <laughs> 
<laughs> but this isn't the head covering. Really, isn't a reflection of the kippa or the yarmulke that Jewish men wear today. No, it's not talking about that. That actually only came into Jewish practice in the 1600s. So okay. that was not a that was not a biblical issue that was being addressed here. So you shouldn't look at your Jewish neighbors and go, "Oh, you're so wrong because you're wearing that." Nah, yeah. it's not the issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, and that kind of goes back to the last segment we were talking about the the language changing yes. and the the ideas and the concepts changing. So mm-hmm. modesty and submissive attitude that that is no longer that veiling mm-hmm. that indicates that. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I think you've got a great attitude, Trish. I've never seen you fully veiled. Yeah, yeah. right. But yeah, but you, I've always seen you being modest. Except maybe in the winter. When I've got <laughs> right, in the winter, The scarf yeah. and the hat and all the things. Yeah, but not, yeah. In, not but, in this sense. But always dress modest. The December Chicago is yeah. right. a different issue, right? Right, yeah. right. Okay, thank you for that question, David. Uh, next question is from a different David in Ohio. Listens to WCRF. We're going to Mark 12, verses 35 to 37, which says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the greatest throng heard him gladly. The great throng heard him gladly. So David wants to know, can you clarify this? Who is he referring to? Who is David referring to when David called him Lord? And who is the him he's referring to? Yeah. Well, he's talking about the my Lord. The Lord God said to my Lord. That's from Psalm 110. Mm-hmm. And so David says, uh, the Lord God, that's the, the first part of that, is Yahweh said uh, from Psalm 110. Like God the Father. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Yahweh, mm-hmm. the Lord, uh, said to my Lord, who is David's Lord? Yeah. That's what, what he's asking. And uh, clearly what he's saying, it's the Messiah. Uh, who is David's Lord? And so when he asks, uh, David himself calls him Lord. Do you follow that? He, uh, he calls him my him. Lord. David calls the Messiah my Lord? Yes. Okay. Yeah. There's too many and, hymns. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? And that's, that's why it's confusing, but the Lord said to my Lord. David calls him so my Yahweh, Lord. So as David, he is saying, Yahweh God says to my, my Messiah. Lord. Yeah. And so who's he talking about? The reason why this comes up is that there are people who think that this is about David. And so the Lord God said to my Lord, and whoever wrote it was talking about King David. And what Jesus is saying is, no, David wrote this. He says, the Lord God said to my Lord, who is David's Lord? Only one can be David's Lord, and that's his greater son, the Messiah. But he's his descendant. He isn't born yet. But he is. he recognized prophetically. But he knows he's prophetically. Yeah. Okay. He knows he's coming. And people say, well, how could David know that prophetically? Uh, David actually tells us in 2 Samuel 23 in his last words, uh, he says that he's writing about the Messiah. Actually, uh, how's this? This is radical stuff here. 2 Samuel 23, uh, the I'm going to give you the Rydelnik translation of it. I think it's the most accurate. It says, the prophetic oracle of David... 
the son of Jesse, the prophetic oracle of the man raised, and it would be, based on the variant readings, the earlier and best manuscripts say that the prophetic oracle of the man raised up, that's David, uh, concerning the anointed one or the Messiah of the God of Jacob, the delightful one of the songs of Israel. And so David is saying in this, now I know that most English versions don't have it. I had to write an article about it. It's in the Moody Bible Commentary as well on 2 Samuel 23 about what David's doing there. But what David is saying is his favorite subject, the delightful one of the songs of Israel, is the anointed of the God of Jacob, the Messiah of the God of Jacob. And then the person might automatically say, David, how do you know about him? He's your son, just like you just said. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. So David says, I could speak about the Messiah because God inspired me. His word was on my tongue. So he superintended me, I should say. Spirit empowered me to write about the Messiah. So, And we know that, that Jesus was a descendant of David, so physically... Humanly, he was a. This is the genealogy descendant, yeah. of G. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Is what it says in Matthew one one. And the prophets all foretold that Jesus, the or they didn't say the name Jesus then. The prophet said the Messiah would be a descendant of David. But so, but he still. But David. David saw the Messiah, his future descendant, as his Lord. Well. That's when you try when you try and pinpoint that and and really think about it, it's kind of mind blowing and very confusing. Which is <laughs> which the reason it's mind blowing is how could David have a descendant who's his lord? What's the messianic king? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So and same as everyone that's Jesus throughout, point. throughout the whole Old Testament that they are looking forward to this Messiah coming. Yeah. David was as well. Yeah. And exactly. was able to prophesy. Even in some of the Psalms, you yeah. you have mentioned that yeah. those are prophetic. Psalm 110, the one that's being quoted here, yeah. clearly prophetic. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that question, David. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> um, another question in Tennessee from w, uh, WMBW listener. Uh, another David. I have a question. If you are a Christian and continue sinning, do you have a scripture of what God will do to that Christian. For if a person is a genuine follower of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the first thing I would say is he would forgive that person. So <laughs> well, we, we were but, laughing about, uh, even I, we don't want to laugh about this, but it's so often we, we I, I find it amusing how people want to make God like the big meanie in the sky who doesn't believe in grace. Hmm. Uh, doesn't believe in mercy. And God, if we've trusted in Jesus, all those sins are forgiven. And when he says, if a believer keeps on sinning, well, let's be truthful, who doesn't? Right. Uh, it says in 1 John 1, uh, if we deny that we have sinned, we're making God out to be a liar. So, of course, we're going to keep sinning, Uh I think that that's... One of the things we know is God doesn't wink at sin, like, oh, that's not so bad. Yeah. He doesn't do that. 
But here's but what he does. If, we, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the, the point is, verse 9 in between those is we confess, we restore fellowship. Now, the next question is, what if we pers- we're genuine believers, we've really trusted in Jesus, and we have an area where we persist in sin. What will God do for us then, Eva? Well, he'll forgive us. His, his Besides faithful... forgiving us, what does he want to do for us? Can you ask your question one more time? Yeah. He would want there, to discipline certain, us? I'm pointing out Hebrews 12. What oh, does he do? Yeah. He, he disciplines. He disciplines us as a father disciplines his son. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, God will not just uh, expect us to sin because it says it. Uh, we have an advocate with the Father when we sin. That's what First John 2, 1 says. Yeah, right. And then he which will... Is, which is what I was saying. He doesn't just wink at it like, yeah. oh, it's not so bad. Yeah. He's going to try to remind us and, and bring us back and continue to teach us how to be righteous as yeah. he demands us to be. He's going to discipline us so that we walk faithfully with him, mm-hmm. uh, that our lives are transformed. Uh, when I think that's such a, a, an important aspect that God is going to discipline us. And this is the difference between fellowship sin, fellowship Mm -hmm. relationship, and salvation relationship, right? Yeah, yeah. that uh, we break our fellowship with him, we confess it, we restore our fellowship with him, but that's what 1 John 1, 9 is about. But God loves us, and Hebrews 12 teaches that he will discipline us as a father disciplines his child, and, and he will correct us and bring us back into that close fellowship with him uh, as we sin. We're going to come back and talk about more of the questions you've sent in. This is Michael Rydelnik, Eva Rydelnik, and Trisha McMillan. Stay right there. We're coming right back. special all-mailbag, all-the-time edition of Open Line. We're just taking the questions you've sent in. We're answering them today. And with me is the team. You know, Courtney is part of the team. She's making sure everything happens. And uh, Eva Rydelnik is always part of the team. Uh, Even when she's not here on the air with me, she's sending me the answers via text (laughs) message. And Trisha is always here. She's making sure I stay on track and not fall off. Uh, the plan or anything like that. And she organizes, talks to people all the time. I appreciate the teamwork that we have here. And there are other members of the team that we don't always see, but I always remember those are our kitchen table partners. The kitchen table partners are people who are part of the team by committing to give monthly. And hopefully when they give monthly, they also pray regularly for open line, which we would really appreciate. And they're part of the team. They're just as much part of the team as anyone else here at Moody Radio. We so appreciate them. And as you're listening, perhaps you've been listening regularly to Open Line. You find that this program encourages you in your walk with the Lord. If that's the case and you'd like to become a Kitchen Table Partner, we sure would appreciate it. Uh, if you do, we'll send you a special audio Bible study every other week prepared exclusively for our Kitchen Table Partners. Become a Kitchen Table Partner today by calling 888-644-7122 or sign up online at openlineradio.org. 
And we have a lot more questions here, Tricia. So let's go to them. Leah in Indiana listens to WGNR and asks, when we are saved or born again, we receive the Holy Spirit, which we read about in Scripture can be grieved if it's not heeded. Mm -hmm. If we have grieved the Holy Spirit so much by falling away, how do we revive it once we return to our faith? I think that's kind of connected to the last thing we were talking about. Yeah. Um, that that the idea that if we confess our sins, that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And when we do that, I think that would reestablish that fellowship relationship with the Lord, which the loss of which was what was grieving the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So maybe I should back up and ask, what is grieving the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to right here <laughs> in Ephesians 4 is the only place where it talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. And uh, what it says, uh, that we shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit, I'm trying to find the exact verse, uh, uh, because because of our own behavior. Uh, here's It's verse 30. Uh, he's talking about not being uh, unjustifiably, unrighteously angry. Uh, becoming bitter, uh, stealing. Uh, uh, he also deals with foul language. And he says, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. And I think it's so interesting that she's saying, well, how do we revive him? It says, you were sealed by him until the day of redemption. That means he's securing our salvation until the day we stand in God's presence. And so... We can't get rid of him. He's sealing us. He's indwelling us. He's with us all the time, but we can grieve him. It makes him feel sorrow, I guess you would say, grief, loss, when we are not walking with him in a faithful way. It, it, it's painful emotionally. If, if we, it, we can't really talk about God having the same kind of emotions that we do, but it is, it is painful to the Spirit of God to be indwelling and sealing us and having us basically ignore him. And so that's what it means to grieve him. And I would say uh, when, we, when we talk about this, we don't have to revive the Holy Spirit. Right. So it's the fellowship issue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It has to do with our fellowship with yeah. the the Lord. If not, anyone needs reviving, not, it's us. It's us, right? Yeah, you know, with mm-hmm. confession. Mm-hmm. But we don't have to revive the Holy Spirit. I, and I really like what you said about it. what. What do we? What things do we do that grieve the Holy Spirit? We'll just read the context. Look at the yeah. things before the verse and after the verse, mm-hmm. and you'll see what it is that grieves Him. And, yeah. And what we should do as an alternative uh, to stop it. Yeah. <laughs> stop it. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah. But confess. <laughs> but also confess our sins mm-hmm. and then move on. Yeah. I think what's interesting is Ephesians 4.32 is one that I still remember learning as a child. Mm -hmm. Great verse. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't know that if I if you said what's the context when you said Ephesians 4.30, I was like, wait, wait a minute. That verse about being kind is right after that. Exactly. What? Yeah. What's happening? That's an alternative to those other behaviors. Right. Yeah. The bitterness and the yeah. anger and yeah. the exactly. wrath and the shouting. Yeah. So we should be memorizing 
31 as well as 32. Yeah, but, you know, for a household as a child, you know, instead of right. yelling at your sister yeah. or brother, right. you should be loving them and being kind to them. Exactly. Right. That you have that alternative. Start exactly. at a very young age with that. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that question, Leah. Our next question is from Victoria in Florida. She listens to WRMB. It says, after Jesus said it is finished on the cross... Where did his soul and body go until his resurrection? A woman in her life group insists he went to hell to defeat the devil, but I disagree. I don't think Jesus ever went to hell. Can you support this with scripture so I can share it with my friend? Well, let's think of a couple of passages. Uh, Let's see. Let's do this. First of all, what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Yeah, he said, this day... You will be with me in paradise. Yeah. Today so, you will be with me in paradise. Yeah. So we know immediately the thief and the Lord Jesus were going to be together in paradise. Paradise being the Jewish uh, or heaven euphemism heaven. For, for heaven. heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, what did the Lord Jesus say when he himself was dying, physically dying? He said, "Father, into your hands I commend my spirit." Not into hell. Mm-hmm. He goes to be with his Father immediately. So the idea of going to hell is more from the Apostles' Creed than it is from Scripture. On the other hand, the Apostles' Creed in the earliest versions didn't have the descent to hell. That was a later version of the Apostles' Creed, that, and it was added to the Apostles' Creed uh, because that became a, a dominant thought. Some people think it comes from 1 Peter 3.18. That's the most common uh, but it seems to me, and there are a lot of different views, Jesus came and spoke judgment to the demons, or that Jesus went to hell and and uh, proclaimed his victory over Satan. Some people say that, you know. Uh, but I think what First Peter 3 is talking about is that he made proclamation through Noah, if you look at the context, it's talking about Noah, uh, that when Noah was building the ark, he was preaching to the people around him to escape judgment, to, to you know, it's going to rain, he's saying, you know, it's going to rain. And uh, the he was making this proclamation, but it was actually Jesus saying it, and he said it to people who died ignoring Noah, and they are spirits now in prison. So when it talks here... He went and made a proclamation to the spirits who are now in prison, meaning he proclaimed it through Noah to these people in the time of the flood, before the flood, and they ignored it, and now they are in prison awaiting final judgment. So to clarify, you said this is that Noah preaching was actually Jesus preaching? Yeah. So Jesus was, do you mean Jesus was physically there no no i mean through him he was okay he gave in his message. so like in his stead he was kind of like moses was the voice yeah, for god he was an ambassador he was for an him. ambassador for yeah jesus and okay okay and you know you can see that in uh i'm trying to think even in the uh, other parts where uh in ephesians 2 it talks about that jesus preached peace to those who were near, meaning Jewish people, and to those who were far. Well, really, it was the apostles that went to the Gentiles. 
but the apostles were his ambassadors, and so he could they preach. They went in his name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Victoria, I hope that helps you in your conversation with your friend. Um, helps clarify that a and, little bit. Wait, wait, and Eva, you said you wanted verses. Uh, she said she yes, wanted verses. Yes. Look at Luke, look at the crucifixion uh, passage in Luke 23. That's where he says, into your hands. That's where he says that you'll be with me in paradise today and into your hands I commit my spirit. So look Both at Luke, of them Luke are 23. In the same, are in okay. Luke 23. Yeah, and also what about in John 20 when Ma- Mary touches the Lord Jesus and he says, oh, uh, don't, don't cling, don't to, cling me. to me because the, I haven't ascended to my Father in heaven. People think, well, that was he in hell before. He was not talking about that. He's talking about he's going to be on earth for 40 days teaching and encouraging the, the disciples and appearing to them for 40 days before he goes to heaven. Uh, yeah. So, And she did ask, Victoria asked about his body. The body was just in the grave, right, yes. during these three days. Yes. Right. Which the is body why was then in it the was grave. missing. Yeah. That and was his, a big deal. And his, yeah. and his spirit went to be with the Father. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, All right. This is, this is one of the most common questions we get. I don't know why this is such a big issue for people, but some people even get mad at me, and, and I, I've gotten some really angry letters. Uh, and so I just tell people that Michael Van Lanningham agrees with me, so they should get <laughs> mad at him. So that's it. Anyway, uh, Michael Van Lanningham is the co-editor of the Moody Bible Commentary and now an adjunct professor at Moody. So uh, that's uh, that's let's blame him. Usually I, I blame Chris Fabry when people get mad at me, but he didn't. He, <laughs> he didn't have anything to do with this. Yeah, no, we're going to blame no. Michael. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to take more of your questions right here on a very special edition of Open Line, all mailbag, all the time. Trisha's put them all together in this big, fat mailbag, and we're going through them, and we're handling the questions you sent. That was Eva Rydelnik answering and Trisha McMillan, and, and the three of us are doing our best to get through the mailbag. Stay with us. We'll get to more questions in just a moment. You know, in Psalm 122, verse 6, the psalmist exhorted us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, a prayer we too often neglect. That's why Chosen People Ministries' new calendar is a great reminder to pray for Israel. This year's calendar will immerse us in the land of Israel. It will encourage us to pray. Breathtaking photos from the land and prompts heartfelt prayer This calendar can be yours free. Since the Jewish New Year begins in the fall, the calendar runs from September of 23 through December of 2024. For your free copy of Chosen People Ministries' Jewish Art Calendar, just go to the Open Line website. That's openlineradio.org. Scroll down. You'll see the link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that link, and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of the 2023-24 Jewish Art Calendar. So grateful that you stayed with us. This is Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. Eva Rydelnik is here with me. So is Trisha McMillan. We're going through an all-mailbag, all-the-time edition of Open Line. And so we're going to go right back to the mailbag, Trisha. All right. Patty wrote us from Florida and is looking at Hebrews 4.12. I do like this verse. Mm-hmm. Which says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. 
Mm-hmm. She wants to know, um, are humans born with both a soul and a spirit, or is the spirit here the Holy Spirit with a believer? Okay. First of all, let me just say, not the Holy Spirit. This is talking about getting to the innermost being of a person. And uh, the ho- the Word of God penetrates us the same way a sword can cut joint and marrow and get to the core of the bone, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So what this is saying is that the Word of God works that way to get to our soul and spirit. Now, here's the thing, and I think Eva would agree with me. We're not exactly sure what the difference is. Yeah, it's the immaterial but, part of us is described different ways in the Bible at different places. Well, there's mind, we, heart, emotion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, uh, there's Will, all these soul, things. there's spirit. So I like to call that all the immaterial part. But mm-hmm. here's what this verse mm-hmm. is saying, is that this is the word of God, even though I can't distinguish between soul and spirit, he can penetrate my innermost being with his word. And and I think every one of us can say, yes, I've been reading the Bible. And then all of a sudden, it's it will bring conviction or challenge or guidance. It gets to my deepest need as I'm reading it. And that's what it's saying. Uh, it. It is sharper than anything else. Nothing is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Mm -hmm. And so when the word of God speaks to us, it speaks to our core, to our heart. And it's very poetic the way the the thing is phrased. But I think Mm -hmm. the the poetry aside, that is the point that you just said, Michael. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Goes to the very center, our very core. Yeah. There's... uh, a very, uh, there was a guy named Joseph Rabinovich who was a founded the first modern messianic congregation, and the way, he, the way he came to faith, he was in Israel in 1882. Someone gave him a Yiddish New Testament. It was his first language. Yiddish was his first language, which is a Jewish language spoken as mostly German, written with Hebrew letters, and it was the language of European Jewry, and he was reading this Yiddish New Testament on the Mount of Olives. And I love the story when you read his testimony. He looked at it and saw Jesus. And he says, this is Jesus, our brother. And he came to faith in Jesus right then. He went back to Russia, to Kishinev, and founded the first modern Messianic congregation. Hmm. And I just, I think of that story because the way, as he read it, he was so struck by Jesus, the word of God spoke to his innermost being, and he believed in Jesus. Hmm. So that's what it's talking about. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that question. Next question is from William, who is channeling his inner archaeologist. Okay. <laughs> um, so kindred spirit with you guys who... Perfect, like, because the, Jones, right? the movie's just come out, the new movie. Good <laughs> yeah. for him. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to know, he's been studying this and researching this, um, but where is Sodom? Yeah, there's uh, recently there has been some things written about a different location from Sodom, which is the one that is commonly under Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happened. It was it was a beautiful area. There was so much wickedness. God destroyed it, and and it was at the end, the southern end of the Dead Sea. It's been pretty well accepted that Sodom and Gomorrah, the has 
was located at the southern end of the Dead Sea. And the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah accounts for the conditions that we have there in that area. And a person has come along and said, well, no, it probably wasn't there. It was probably further north. It was probably in Jordan. It isn't in Israel. And there's a lot of flap on the internet about that. But I think that the best archaeology and the best science confirms the traditional location of Sodom and Gomorrah being down there at the southern end of the Dead Sea on the on the area which has been traditionally understood to be Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's lots of reasons for this, way more than we could go in mm-hmm. to uh, in the time that we have. But let me recommend a book. Okay, It's called The Stones Cry Out, What Archaeology Reveals About the Truth of the Bible. And it's by a wonderful believer named Dr. Randall Price. The Stones Cry Out. And I'm sure that you can post that on the on our link for us. He's a professor at Liberty University. Professor, yeah, great Bible teacher. Great scholar, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, he's been involved in the dig for the Dead Sea Scrolls and all kinds of things. He ran the Qumran dig. Yeah. Oh, he was the archaeologist in charge of the Qumran dig. Right. Oh, wow. And where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And he has has written... Recent years. There's a whole chapter in this book about the location of of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we'll put that on our our page if you want to look it up to read more. Was the salt, uh, we may not know this, is, is part of that because of the salt in the Dead Sea that it is thought to be there? Yep, there's, there is that and um, some other archaeological things that are discovered there. And the things that are, have, archaeologists have discovered in the alternate site that this person mm-hmm. is suggesting um, are totally contrary to the time period of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. The, on the more northern side, which is being suggested as an alternative view, there's Roman ruins and things there, and there were that would not have existed after the destruction of Sodom okay. and Gomorrah. Because at, of how early in the Genesis, it was. In the Genesis period. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because of right. the time. Yeah. All right. So, so even though my phone ring, my standard phone mm-hmm. ring is the music from Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. Eva's the one in our family that really loves archaeology. <laughs> yeah. And and so <laughs> I've de- utterly deferred this question uh, uh-huh. to you, Eva. You know, here's the thing that we need to know is that Sodom and Gomorrah really did exist, that that area became utterly barren. And I think there were upheavals that caused those uh, mountains the to geologic come there, formations, geologic formations mm-hmm. to keep that area from getting water. And one day it will be re- when the Messiah comes, water will come from the temple and regenerate that area mm. and will become a living sea instead of a dead sea. Wow. So that's what we're looking forward to. That's the first hour, folks. Second hour is still coming up with more questions that you've sent in for the mailbag. Second hour of our all mailbag, all the time program will be coming up with Eva Rydelnik and Trisha McMillan. Check out our webpage on the break if you'd like. OpenLineRadio.org has got all sorts of links, things that you'll find helpful like our current resource or how to become a kitchen table partner. Second hour of Open Line coming up straight ahead, so don't don't leave us. Stick with us. Open Line with Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.